Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to this last great day. I hope you had a fantastic Feast of Tabernacles. You know, it's really hard to believe sometimes that the Feast is over already, and we're already into the last great day. You think about how quickly the last seven days went by, and I can't help but think, will it be like this at the end of the millennium, where God's saints, His true people, look back on a thousand years and think, wow, where did that time go? We know that to God, a thousand years is as just a day. And for God, one day is as a thousand years to His people. And I just I think sometimes we're going to get to the end of the millennium, to the great white throne judgment, and look back and think, wow, that time went by so quickly. And here we are. Day number eight, the last great day. What does this day mean to you? As we come to this day and the fulfillment of this day off into the future, what will Christ have to say to His saints just before that great resurrection? What might He say? We can ponder over this. We can think about this. But I can't help but think that Jesus Christ is going to pull His first fruits together, His family, before that great resurrection and give them just a little bit of a pep talk. Encourage them. Prepare them. For what is going to happen? Maybe he'll say something like this. Thank you for coming. Thank you for arranging together with me. In just a few short hours, the time that we've all been yearning for, for a thousand years, the time that my father and I have been looking forward to since the foundation of the world will come to pass. You've worked lovingly. You've worked hard. You've worked with people to help them grow, to overcome, to know the truth. You've spent time building and preparing for the resurrection of billions. You and your teams of saints have developed road systems, sewers, water systems. You've created, perhaps, an infrastructure to prepare for billions that will come up. You've trained your teams well. And now, the time has come and knocks at the door when tens of billions of people will be resurrected. Ready your teams. Ready your family. Your spiritual family. Encourage them. Thank them. And prepare to hear the awesome sound of the resurrection. You know, we don't know what Jesus Christ's pep talk is going to be like, but I have a feeling that He will ready His saints with words of encouragement just prior to this great event. Brethren, why is this day, the last great day, so special to you? Do you long to be part of the fulfillment of this last great day? Why is it that you long to fulfill this day? Why is this day called the last great day? How well do you understand the meaning of this day? What is so great about this day that God would set it apart as a separate day from the previous seven? And why should you and why should I yearn deeply within ourselves for the fulfillment of this awesome day? Brethren, today what I'd like to do is review the meaning of this, the last great day. I want to discuss the clear understanding of why today is the last great day, and not yesterday. And finally, I want you with me to meditate 
on what this day might look like when it is finally fulfilled. When I was a child, the last great day was one of the most exciting feast days to me. I had two sets of grandparents. One of them was called. Uh, my grandmother is actually still alive, and she has been called. My other grandparents never were called, and I love them dearly. But there was always something missing in our relationship. We never could connect on the truth. They died. They went to their graves after living long lives, never knowing, never understanding the full truth of God. And as a young person, growing up in the truth, I longed for the day when they would come up and we would be able to share the meaning of God's plan together. This last great day pictures that time. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, if you would, as we get started this afternoon. Colossians chapter 1 will go to these words that were penned by the Apostle Paul to God's elect, the church at Colossae. Let's look at what God revealed in Colossians chapter 1 that has to do with this day. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, we read, For by Him, that is by Jesus Christ, all things were created that are on earth and in heaven, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence. But Christ, we're reminded here, is the one who created all things in heaven and on earth. He created the clouds. He created the stars. God through Him, the Father through Him, created these things. He created this beautiful earth, these wonderful environments that we've been able to spend the Feast of Tabernacles in. The beauty, the majesty, the grandeur. He created it all. By Him and for Him, all these things were made. Let's turn back to Leviticus 23 now. Christ is the one who created. He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. He is the one who spoke and earth existed. <clears throat> he is the eternal, the ever-living one. Leviticus chapter 23. I think most of us know this well because this outlines the feast days. It gives us the details of many of the feasts of the Lord. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Notice in your Bible, most of them will recognize the Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. This is Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, or Y-H-W-H, the ever-living one, the eternal. This is the one who created all things. We look back to um, Exodus 20, and we don't need to go there, but we see that it was the Lord who gave the commandments on Mount Sinai, the one who later became Christ. This is the same Christ that's speaking here. And he said, verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of whom? The feasts of the Lord, the one who became Jesus Christ, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. What's a holy convocation? It's a commanded assembly, isn't it? The word in Hebrew that for holy convocation also means a rehearsal 
So when we look at these feast days, we are reminded that we are rehearsing for something. The last seven days, the Feast of Tabernacles, we've been rehearsing, haven't we? For the thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints right here on the earth. Today, the last great day, we are rehearsing, we are reviewing some very important principles for the future of all mankind. But these are to be holy convocations. They are my feasts, says the Lord Christ. These are his feasts. Let's skip down here in Leviticus 23 to verse 33. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. Of course, we have just completed that time. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. That was the first holy day of the feast. You shall do no customary work on it for seven days. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation. So, you've got a seven-day feast, and then there's an eighth day, but it's not part of the seventh-day feast. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly or a solemn assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. These are, again, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. To offer an offering made by fire to the Lord a burnt offering and a grain offering and a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Skipping down to verse 39. Also, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered the fruit from the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. So you keep this feast for seven days. <clears throat> and on the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And then in verse 40, we are to truly rejoice during this time. Let's go to Numbers chapter 29. Numbers 29. And as you're turning there, just be thinking about what God just said. There's a seven-day feast, this Feast of Tabernacles. And then there's an eighth day. Why would God say there's a seven-day feast and then say that there's also a commanded assembly on the eighth day? when the eighth day falls outside of the seven? Well, I think many of you know, and we're going to review that today. Levit or excuse me, Numbers chapter 29. And we'll start reading in verse 12 about the sacrifices that God implemented early on with regard to these holy days. Verse 12 of Numbers 29, on the 15th day of the seventh month, that is the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, you shall have a holy convocation a commanded assembly. You shall do no customary work and you shall keep a feast to the Lord for seven days. And you shall offer a burnt offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And notice, 13 young bulls, two rams, 14 lambs in their first year, they shall be without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls. Two-tenths for each of the rams. One-tenth for each of the lambs. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering. Besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. So, God is giving specific directions for the offerings during the Feast of Tabernacles. The second day, verse 17. Present twelve young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs of the first year. And then the grain offerings. And then a kid of the goats, verse 19. The offering was exactly the same with the exception of the bull. One less bull. Verse 20. 
This is day three. Present 11 bulls. So one less bull and the rest of the offerings are the same. And the, it goes down the same for the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth days, in the seventh day. But verse 35, God changes the offering on the eighth day. Again, signifying the difference between seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles and this eighth day. Verse 35, on the eighth day, you shall have a sacred assembly. Again, a commanded assembly. You shall do no customary work. You shall present an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, if it followed accordingly, there would be six bulls here, but there aren't. God says here that there's to be one bull, one ram and seven lambs, a different type of offering on this eighth day, signifying that it was a different type of day. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. The difference between the seven-day feast and the eighth day. But what I'd like to do right now is let's fast forward to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to get a perspective on the Feast of Tabernacles. Contrasting the Feast of Tabernacles, again, with this last great day. What's the Feast of Tabernacles about? What did we study over the last seven days? What did we meditate? What did we review on? What did we try and conjure up images of in our mind? What did we try and rehearse? What was the meaning of this past feast? Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. The meaning of the Feast of Atonement or the Day of Atonement. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and he shut him up and he set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they that sat on them. <clears throat> and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus Christ and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years in an environment without Satan, without his demons, without their influence, what an awesome time. And I don't want to take too much time to review the meaning of the feast because we've done that for a week. But what an awesome time that will be. Verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Which is the first? The resurrection that starts at the beginning of the thousand years? with the saints of God? Is that the first resurrection or the one at the end of the thousand years? Obviously, it's the one at the beginning is the, is the first resurrection. So the one at the end, after the millennium, when the rest of the dead raise has got to be a second resurrection, obviously. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such is the second death, and it has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days, complete number, pictures the completion of at least the 7,000-year plan of God. It pictures 6,000 years of the world under the sway of Satan coming to an end as Christ and the saints return to the earth, triumphant. Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
wonderful Counselor, the Mighty King, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And with Him, rulers, the saints, you and I, God willing, working with Him to fix this earth that has been under the sway of Satan and has been ruined by Him and by a humanity that has not been stewards of the earth as God intended. Following immediately after that time, at the end of that thousand years, finally, all of humanity who have ever lived will have the opportunity, brethren, to know and to understand a truth, a truth that has been kept from them, a truth they have been blinded to. Romans reminds us that their carnal minds cannot see the law of God. They can't follow the law of God. It's impossible. Yet, when they have this opportunity for a resurrection on the last great day, they finally will come up and know and they'll understand the awesome truth of God for the first time in their lives. You know, by the end of the millennium, there will probably only be a few billion people that will have come through the millennium. Not many when we look at the overall scope of humanity. Some have estimated that somewhere between 12 and 50 billion, possibly more, have lived since the creation of Adam. 12 and 50 billion with a B. Right now we've got about 7 billion on the earth. We don't know how many have totally lived, but tens of billions probably who will come up in the last day, on the last great day. Turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and we actually look to the words of one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, a woman. One of those who followed Christ was taught by Christ from the Word of God. And we see that Martha understood about the last great day, or at least had a concept of the last great day. John chapter 11 And verse 17, John chapter 11, verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. That is Lazarus here. Remember what happened. Jesus Christ actually delayed his coming so that he would get there late. He came to see Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his sisters. Now, verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And that's what happens today, isn't it? We lose a loved one, and people who care about us try and console us, try and encourage us, try and support us. That's what was happening at this time. Verse 20, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knew the power that Jesus Christ possessed. She knew that it could raise someone and heal the sick. She had seen him do these kinds of miracles. Look what she said, verse 22. But even now I know whatever you ask God, God will give you. She knew he had the power to raise from the dead. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Christ is prophesying here. And she's reading him as he's talking about the future. Notice verse 24. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. When? On the last day. 
Martha understood there would be a resurrection on the last day in which her brother would come up and in which many others would come up. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives believes in me and shall never die. You believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come to the world. But Martha understood there was a great resurrection coming on the last day. She assumed her brother would come up in it. Of course, Jesus Christ ended up resurrecting him very shortly after this. But she understood this day, at least to a point. John chapter 7, let's go back a little bit. Why did she understand this? Well, Christ had taught about this. And particularly in chapter 7, he taught about this following the Feast of Tabernacles. John chapter 7, and we read actually in verse 8, Jesus Christ's brothers had come up to him and they said, are you going to go keep the feast? And he said, you go keep the feast. Verse 8, I am not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet come fully. In verse 10, we see he did go up to the feast, but he went in secret. Now, verse 37, John 7, verse 37. Why do we call this the last great day? Well, they're the words of Christ, aren't they? Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, who those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But it was on the last day, the great day of the feast, that Jesus Christ said this in the temple. If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Well, a couple things to think about here. Number one, has that happened yet? Can anyone who wants to come to Jesus Christ, who wants to know the truth, who wants to understand, can they come to him right now and know and understand? You know the answer to that. We're told in John 6:44, nobody can come to the Father unless they're called. God has to call. No one can come to Christ except the Father draw them. Right now is not the time for everyone. This has not been completely fulfilled yet, and it won't be until the last great day. But the other question is, this is the last day, the great day of the feast. Which day is it? Is it day seven or is it day eight? Is it the seventh day, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles yesterday? Or is it today, the eighth day? There's confusion today among even some of the people of God of which day this is. People who've been taught the truth and yet they've forgotten or they've been misled. According to some historical sources, brethren, ritually, during the days of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a water ceremony where water was brought to the temple from the pool of Siloam nearby. The water that was brought to the temple pictured the water God provided to the Israelites as they sojourned with the tabernacle in the wilderness. Remember the water that came from the rock? Remember the water God provided for the Israelites? It pictured that. And then, on the last day, there was a special water ceremony. And we'll read about that a little bit. Let me share with you 
some quotes from several different Bible commentaries. <clears throat> now, I know we've got to be careful with commentaries. They're man's interpretation. But some of these are helpful because they bring in a historical picture. And even some of these unconverted commentarians understand that it had to be the eighth day and it couldn't be the seventh day of the feast. But let me reiterate, even some of God's people are confused. There are a number of groups that teach that yesterday was the last great day. And today is just the eighth day. What is the fallacy? What's the problem if that happens? If yesterday was the last great day and it pictures the rivers of living water being poured out to the rest of the earth, what does today mean? If yesterday was the last great day, we have no understanding of any special meaning for today. And you and I know that the annual festivals picture the plan of God. Yet those who espouse yesterday was the last great day have no explanation for what the meaning of today is. That's part of the problem. But let's read some of these quotes. Let me read from Expositor's Bible Commentary. This is volume 9, page 86. Quote, Whether the last day of the feast was the seventh day or the eighth day is not clear. But, they continue, If the last and greatest day of the feast refers to the eighth day, it makes the appeal of Jesus all the more meaningful. Why is that? Let's read down in Vine's expository commentary on the book of John. Vine's, and this is uh, page 122 and 123. It says, The controversy died down till the last day, the great day of the feast, the Hosanna Rabbah. The eighth day was, like the first, observed as a Sabbath. And they cite Leviticus 23:39 that we read earlier. Special sacrifices were offered. They identify Numbers 29 that we read. During the seven days preceding, pilgrims, leaving their booths, marched in procession seven times around the city, shouting, Hosanna! Crowds followed the priests and the Levites daily, bearing golden vessels to the brook of Siloam to carry the water thereof to the temple. We read, we, I shared this with you a minute ago. There it would be poured out in the silver vessels on the eastern side of the altar of burnt offering. And all to the clanging of Isaiah's words, Ho! Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And, quote, with joy you shall draw out water from the wells of salvation, unquote. This ritual was apparently not observed on the eighth day. For whereas the preceding ritual symbolized the water from the rock in the wilderness, the eighth day commemorated their entrance into the land of springs of water. The eighth day pictured something else. Access for everyone to abundant water. Hence, Jesus Christ comments on the last great day. Let me read from the New Bible Commentary by Erdman, 1970 edition. This is page 945. He states, The next passage is important because of its teaching about the Spirit. It's verse 37 in John 7. It is set on the last day of the feast, the great day. This was the climax of the celebrations. At this feast, there was a daily water ritual, which was especially stressed on the eighth and final day. The ritual was connected to the need for rain during the following year. In saying, quote, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, unquote, Jesus is claiming to provide a better alternative to the water ritual. And a final quote here from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, volume 3, page 396. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown state, now, 
in the last, the great day of the feast, that is the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a Sabbath, the last feast day of the year, and distinguished by, by very remarkable ceremonies. And these are just some very common commentaries, commonly used, well-known commentaries. And all four of these state that it was most likely the eighth day. Why? Because of the way the rituals followed. And so they're just looking at a historical perspective. Brethren, today the eighth day is the last great day. It is a distinct festival from the seventh day festival that we just finished. This last great day is the last great day of the feast that Christ is talking about. It is the eighth day that Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29 talk about. The seventh day of the feast is not the last great day. <clears throat> Let's go back to John 7, verse 37 and 38, and read them again. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Christ is going to give an opportunity to all of humanity. All of humanity. This is not going to be a second chance when we really think about it because most of humanity never had a calling in their first life. This will be a first opportunity to know and understand the truth. Many worldly skeptics criticize Christianity because it condemns those who've never even known the name of Christ to burn in hell forever. Think about it. What is Christianity's doctrine? If you believe on Christ, what happens? When you die, you float off to heaven and you live in paradise forever. But if you didn't know Christ or if you rejected Him, what happens? You obey an awful Merciless God, right? You go down to the depths of hell and you writhe in pain and you cook and you burn in torment forever. Is that godly? Is that a God of love who would do that to His people? Wouldn't a God of mercy just put sinners to death and let them be gone? Why would He keep them alive forever and torment them forever? This is why some people criticize Christianity so, so powerfully. A loving God couldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. And you know what? Many of those agnostics and atheists are right. A loving God won't do that. That's why the last great day is God's act of love. It really is. Think about it. I was at a uh, speaker's platform when I was in college. It was a public meeting area, and uh, every once in a while, this section of campus, you'd have speakers get up and they would talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. They could talk about anything because, of course, America is a land of free speech. That is, unless you offend somebody, apparently. <clears throat> but this speaker was up there. He was a, a southern United States preacher, and he was preaching fire and brimstone. And he was saying, you've got to give your heart to the Lord. You've got to make a change right now because if you don't, and you die... You're going to go straight to hell and you're going to burn and writhe in agony forever. I was standing way back in the crowd and in front of me were two men who were talking to each other during this uh, fire and brimstone sermon. They were obviously not American. And in fact, listening to them, I figured out they were of some uh, probably Middle Eastern nationality. They may have been uh, Buddhist or Hindu. <clears throat> They didn't believe in Jesus Christ. 
But they were talking to each other and one of them looked at the other and he asked, hmm, so if you've never heard the name of Jesus Christ, you've never had that opportunity and you die, you're going to burn in hell. And they were sort of looking at each other and talking and realizing, hmm, that doesn't seem very fair. What about the people who never have the opportunity to be exposed to it? And I began thinking, what about 4,000 years of humanity who lived and died before Christ even came to the earth? According to that heaven and hell doctrine, those people would have been created by God in the image of God and destined to fail from the very beginning because there was no Christ. Brethren, the heaven and hell doctrine is taught by the world as a doctrine of demons. A doctrine of demons, not a doctrine of love. Because it condemns so much of humanity to the lake of fire to burn forever, which again is not a godly concept. But we worship a God of love, don't we? Let's go to 1 Timothy. And we're going to review a couple of scriptures that God inspired to be here that reveal to us God's desire for all of humanity. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Start reading in verse 3 here. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants everyone to be saved. Is God not capable of bringing most people to, save, to, to being saved? Is He incapable of that? Of course not. He can do that. But if God's called everyone now, He's losing the battle, isn't He? No, there's a time coming. God wants everyone to be saved. Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at a, a companion scripture here in the book of Ezekiel. God talking through the prophet to Israel in the descended nations of Israel, but ultimately to all of us in the rest of the world as well. Ezekiel chapter 33. In verse 11, Ezekiel's told to prophesy here. And God says, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? God's desire for the wicked, is it to burn them in, in everlasting hellfire? Torment forever? No. His desire is for them to what? Repent. Turn, go the other way, come back to Him because He loves them. He wants to bless them. They're made in the image of who? Who are we made in the image of? Our Father in heaven and our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Genesis 1.26 talks about that. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God wants even sinners to turn, not to burn in everlasting fire. Second Peter chapter 3. Another related scripture. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He's not a slacker. He's not one who makes a promise and can't keep it. He's counted the cost. He's all-powerful. He can do it. He's not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Very patient, isn't He? forgiving over and over and over again. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is God's desire? Not only for you and me, but for all of those outside of this room 
all of those who are going on with life today, who have no idea that this is the last great day, that this day pictures the saving of all humanity who will come to God. They have no idea. But God wants them there. He wants them there on this day. He's created an opportunity for all of humanity to come to repentance, to learn His way. And we're told He is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want it to happen. So He created in His plan this, the last great day. Acts chapter 24. Acts 24. In verse 14, God here revealing truth through the Apostle Paul. Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the Law and the Prophets. What was Paul saying here? I believe everything that was written in the Law and the Prophets, what we would consider the Old Testament of today, which reveals truth about this day. Verse 15, I have hope in God, Paul continues, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just, the righteous, the called out ones, and the unjust, those who were not first fruits, those who haven't been given the opportunity to know and understand the truth yet. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's coming. This day pictures the resurrection of the unjust, those who were not given the opportunity to know the truth yet. Let's go back to Revelation 20 and look at some more detail of this last great day. Revelation 20, and we'll start reading in verse 11. John's vision here. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from, the, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. The great white throne judgment. Another descriptor of this day, the last great day. This pictures the white throne judgment, a great day and a period of time where the unjust will be judged. Verse 12, and I saw the dead small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. Books here, it's plural. It means at least two, doesn't it? And another book was opened. So you've got at least two and then a third book. That third book is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. These first two books. What's written in these books? What are these first two books? What are we judged against? Because we're judged today, aren't we? Judgment has begun in the house of God. What does God use us use to judge us with? You've got it on your lap or on your briefcase. The Word of God. We're judged against this. And the sea, verse 13, gave up the dead who were in it. John's having a vision of this resurrection. The sea giving up those who've died in it. Brethren, how many people have died in the oceans and in the seas and in the lakes of the world through tsunamis, through hurricanes, tidal waves, storms. People have died at sea in ships 
Others have died along the coast. You think about the tsunami that hit Sumatra a number of years ago, killing over 200,000 people. You think about the recent um, typhoon that hit Burma. We don't know how many people were killed. Estimates of at least 150,000 people. How many more, brethren, over the eons of time human beings have been alive? But John's vision was the sea gave up these dead. And death and Hades delivered them up. What is Hades? The grave. How many people have been buried over the 6,000 years roughly of human history? Billions of people were given up by the earth. They came up and they stood, we're told, before the throne of God. And they were judged, each one according to his works. How? With a book. And another book, perhaps, in which a log has been made of our or the human being's exploits who've lived. Here's what you did in the past. And here's how it's not right. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So this fast forwards us even to the very end after the white throne judgment. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there's going to be a judgment that takes place. A judging of human beings. It's not going to be a split decision either, as we'll see in just a little bit. There's time that God's going to give people to grow, to overcome, to learn, to live God's way of life, just like we're given the time now. And then there will be a final judgment. There will be many whose names are written in that book of life because they've, working with Christ, working with God's Holy Spirit, have been able to overcome. There will be some who, too, don't have their names written in the book of life. They will be cast into the lake of fire and burned up. They'll become ashes under the feet of the saints, and they'll be forgotten. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. For some of you, this may be the first time that you read through this passage of Scripture. For many of you, you've written, you've have read through this passage of Scripture many times. And for others of you, perhaps you've written, written, read through this passage of Scripture dozens of times. How much time have you taken to really think about and meditate on what is here? How many times have you tried to picture in your mind's eye what this time will be like? Think, brethren. This is the end of the millennium that this great white throne judgment, this last great day takes place, this resurrection, this awesome resurrection. God's saints, His people, you and I, will be spirit beings at this time, God willing. There will be tens of billions of people being raised. What will it be like? What will it sound like? What will it be like to witness and to watch? Ezekiel 37, verse 1, we see the prophecy that God gave to Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. Have you ever been in a valley full of bones? Most of us have not. But think about it. What would it be like to be in a graveyard, in a cemetery, where thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of bodies have been buried? Over the eons of time, mass graves, mass burials have been done, where you dump tens of thousands of bodies into a pit and you cover them over with dirt. I was in a cemetery last week 
<clears throat> and I was walking around looking at the tombstones, thinking about what it must have been like in the lives of some of these people, some of them children dying at a young age, some of them mothers dying in childbirth, others of them living short lives, others living longer lives. And in the cemetery I was in, there were probably several hundred dead bodies, nothing left but bones if they haven't rotted away. And I was thinking about the last great day and what it will be like when hundreds of bodies come up out of the earth. This is where Ezekiel is in vision, in the midst of a valley full of bones. Could you imagine what it would be like to be in a valley full of bones? Sort of an eerie feeling. Recognizing these were human beings at one time, and now they're nothing but bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry, very old. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord, you know, you know the answer to that, God. And he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you. You shall live. I will put sinews on you. And you being covered with flesh uh, uh, will put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. What is the sound of the last great day? A noise. And suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together bone to bone. Have you ever heard bones rattle before? In college, I took an anatomy class, and we were able to learn about different bones and, and actually could knock some of these bones together, human bones. And they sounded, there's a hollow sound to them, but a loud sound because bone is hard. What will it be like to hear bones coming together, clanging together, reassembling? If you're in the midst of a thousand or tens of thousands of these things. The sound will be deafening. What will it be like when this happens simultaneously around the world and you've got tens of billions of bodies coming together with all of these bones? What a sound that will be. Ezekiel has been given a vision of this. So the bones came together with a noise. In verse 8, indeed, as I looked, envision, try and envision, meditate on this. What has Ezekiel been given to see and understand? As I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and skin covered over them, but there's no breath in them. So you've got these bones that come together. Have you ever seen a skeleton? A real one, or a diagram of a skeleton, or a picture? You've got these bones that come together, and you've just got a skeleton standing there. This is the vision. And then what happens? All of a sudden, ligaments start to form, connecting the bones, holding them together. And on top of the bones, you see muscles beginning to form all over the body. And then you see tendons holding the muscle to the bone. You see connective tissue over top of that. You look as these bodies reassemble. And it's interesting, God doesn't say all of a sudden people came up and they were, they were a full body and they had a robe on them. God is reconstructing these bodies. What will it be like for you and I to watch these bodies be reconstructed right in front of us? The stomach forms in the body. The kidneys, the lungs. You see all of these pieces and then skin slowly starts to grow over the whole body. 
Maybe even hair begins to grow out. And yet, there was no breath in them. These ashen-looking bodies, sort of a gray color. doesn't matter what the skin color is. If there's no oxygen, the skin is going to look gray. Just varying shades of gray. Verse 9, And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. So what is he seeing? Bodies, lifeless, standing there. He prophesies to the wind. The wind comes. God is using artificial, artificial respiration, in a sense. The wind hits them and fills their lungs. And they exhale. And the wind hits them again, fills their lungs, and they exhale. All of a sudden, color begins to reappear. People begin to open their eyes. They begin to look around. An exceedingly great army. Yes, this is an, the army of the host of Israel. But combine this with Revelation 20 that we read earlier, and we see this is all of humanity. Tens of billions of people coming to life again. Some after being dead for nearly 7,000 years. What a time. Brethren, where do you want to be on that day? What cemetery do you want to be in? What location do you want to be in? Whose grave do you want to be next to? Who, whose eyes do you want to meet your eyes as they come up out of the ground? Is it a son or a daughter who died early? How about a parent? Someone who you tried to share the truth with and they just thought you were crazy or they could never get it. How about a sibling, a brother or sister or a teacher or a co-worker? Brethren, we're called to be there on that day to witness this incredible event. And what will happen on this day? When people come back to life, what do you think is going to happen? What will it be like? You've got people coming up in graveyards. You ever notice genetics and how they work? I look at my daughter, for example, and I can see my wife's face in my daughter, and I can see mine, but I can also see my grandmother's face in my daughter. Expressions, profiles. You can go back generations and you have some of the same characteristics. What happens in a family graveyard on this day? A family cemetery when a great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother is resurrected next to their great-great-great-great-grandson or daughter. And they look at each other and they say, hmm, you look familiar. Do I know you? Well, no, I've never met you in my life. Well, who are you kin to? Who are you related to? And you begin sharing the genealogy and all of a sudden, great-great-great-great-grandfather's name pops up. And he realizes, that's my great-great-great-great-granddaughter. What will that be like? People are going to be confused, overwhelmed, excited, full of joy, upset. Because perhaps in the last second of their consciousness, they were drowning or burning to death or falling from a gallows or sick and struggling to stay alive. What kind of an experience will this be? People would be resurrected expecting to be in heaven and looking around and pinching themselves and realizing, huh, that hurts. I'm not in heaven, but I'm alive with all these other people. All kinds of thoughts will be rolling through people's brains. They'll be talking. 
conversing, trying to figure it out. What about those who died as suicide bombers, expecting to come up to 70 virgins? And they look around and the room is filled, or the, the area is filled with perhaps 70 virgins, but hundreds of other people. Some will have died as Hindus, expecting to come up in the afterlife as an animal. These are sort of comical to think about, but true. There's almost a billion Hindus on this earth today. And here they come up in the afterlife as a person again. This is going to go against everything just about everyone was ever taught. And brethren, you and I will be there, God willing. Part of this, we'll be able to get these people and sit them down and say, let me tell you a story as we speak lovingly, patiently, but with the voice of God. Revelation 20, or excuse me, Revelation 1 says, with the sound of many waters, they will know. And maybe if it doesn't work, if they won't give us their attention, we call down a little fire from heaven. Or we walk through a wall. Or we float around to get their attention. And we sit them down and we begin to explain. We'll have the opportunity to teach again a group of people, billions of people, the truth of God. Long dead family members, brethren, will understand the truth that you know today. People who never knew will know and understand God's awesome truth. The veil will be taken away. The access will be given. Those who freely come and want the truth, it will be given to them. What a time that will be. Dare to let yourself imagine this future. This is the future God has created because He so loved the world. Let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Passage of Scripture that the Christian, so-called Christian world today uses almost ad nauseum. But a powerful Scripture when we think about this, the last great day, the great white throne judgment. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, to judge them and commit them to hellfire if they sin, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He died on that stake. He bled for you and for I, for me. But He did it for everybody else too, and they haven't had their chance yet. This day, the last great day, is about that awesome chance for all of humanity. And so on this day, we have come full circle, haven't we? We think about the plan of God. We think about the holy days. They began with the Passover. Christ putting Himself up as the Lamb of God. The bread of life dying for us. And here on this last great day, the ultimate fulfillment of that death so that everyone who has ever lived can know and understand and learn to live the truth that we have been given to know today. How long will this time last? This great white throne judgment. Turn to Isaiah 65. 
You and I have been given time, haven't we, brethren? We've been given years, decades in many cases, to live by God's way, to learn to overcome, to learn to use God's Holy Spirit, to learn to walk that way, to put on the mind of Christ, to build with God's help that perfect righteous character within us. These people will have that same opportunity. And God's not going to say, you know what? You've got uh, four hours or you've got two days. You've got access to my Holy Spirit. And if you don't change in two days, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's not what this is about. God's going to give people a fair shot. In fact, more than a fair shot. Isaiah 65 gives us an inkling of how long this great white throne judgment period is going to be. This time of judgment. You know, we are being judged today, aren't we? God doesn't just instantaneously judge us and then it's over with. He's watching. Think about Abraham for a minute. How old was Abraham when his son Isaac was born? Almost a hundred. Ninety-nine. Abraham was called almost 25 years before that. Seventy-five years of age, God really began working with him. How old was Isaac when he was going to be sacrificed by Abraham? Fifteen, twenty years old? So God had been working with Abraham probably some 40 years or so before he sacrificed Isaac. Forty years God worked with Abraham. And what did God say? Remember when Abraham was just about ready to slit the throat of Isaac and, uh, and sacrifice him? God stopped him. He said, stop. And what did he say? Now I know, Abraham. Now I know. After 40 years or so of watching you, of judging you, of looking at your character, of looking at how you react in life and situations, now I know that you're going to follow me no matter what. We're being judged today. Judgment hasn't ceased. It's ongoing. God is watching our character grow and develop. And He will give these people that same opportunity. Not for five years. Not for ten years. Not for fifty years. Not for a thousand either, though. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. No more shall an infant there live but a few days. And that happens, doesn't it? Children are born. Some get sick quickly and they die a few days after they're born. They never had a chance If you take the doctrine of heaven and hell that the world teaches literally, those infants are burning in hell because they never gave their heart to the Lord. Of course, you have machinations that, these contortions that Christians go through to try and explain this away. But that's really the core of what their doctrine teaches. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, he won't die. You know older men, older women who've died but they haven't fulfilled their days? Maybe they've lived to be. It's all relevant, relative, isn't it? Maybe they've lived to be 45, 55, 65, and they died in a car crash. Suddenly, their life ended. Or they died of, a, of a, an acute illness, and their life was taken away. They didn't get to live out their threescore and ten years, or their 120 years, as God points out in some other passages of Scripture. Their life was snuffed out, cut short, before they had a full opportunity. No more shall an infant... From there live but a few days, or an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For a child shall die. How old? A hundred years. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Children and adults. A hundred years, the Bible indicates. And this is the best indicator of how long this great white throne judgment period is. But God is planning 
probably to give people about a hundred years to do what? To learn, to grow, to learn to exercise the fruits of the Holy Spirit, to allow God to be in them, to work with their minds and mold and fashion their minds like He does you and and me, our minds, into the image of Him. He's going to give people a very good shot at overcoming. And yet, we read elsewhere that there will be still those who rebel when Satan is loosed from his pit and he puts pressure on people that will be an army that still comes up against Christ. Individuals who will burn up in the lake of fire because they, knowing the truth, committing to the truth, still reject God in His way. But for the majority, brethren, the opportunity is going to be there. A perfect, wonderful, long opportunity to grow and to overcome. To put on that mind of Christ. God sent His Son into the world to die, to suffer for us so that all of mankind can have the opportunity to repent, to be forgiven, and to receive what? The gift of eternal life. Brethren, you and I are made, aren't we? In the image of the Almighty God, of our Father in Heaven, and our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Look in the mirror when you get home, when you get back to your room. Look in the mirror and realize that's what Christ looks like. Not exactly, but with a face, with two eyes, and a nose, and ears, and hair, and a body, and hands, and arms, and legs, and feet. We're made in His image to become like Him. On the last great day, we will already have become that way, God willing. But the rest of the world, too, will have that opportunity. They, too, are made in God's image. They, too, have the potential that we have now. God today is working with just a group of first fruits, but this day, brethren, reminds us that all of humanity who has ever lived will have the same opportunity that we have today. How badly do you desire for all of humanity to know the truth of God? How badly, brethren, do you yearn deep inside of you, just as the whole creation groans in agony, eagerly and anticipating, waiting for this day? How badly do you desire the fulfillment of this day? Brethren, as we continue to work individually to overcome with God's help, as we work to develop the personality traits of Christ in His mind, we too should yearn with our whole hearts for the fulfillment, brethren, of this, the last great day. The opportunity to teach and to educate billions in this awesome way of life that we know and understand now. Brethren, that day, that time, that white throne judgment period, the fulfillment of the last great day, the time when all who have ever lived will finally have their first opportunity to know the truth of God will be truly awesome. And you and I are called to be there. How real is this day to you, brethren? How ready are you for this day to finally come?